Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast as we continue our Christmas journey. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus as the story is told in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel contains the most familiar events of the Christmas story that we include in our traditional celebrations. Luke, however, omits one important and beloved element of that story, the coming of the wise men to offer their gifts to the newborn Jesus. For that story, we must turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The story begins. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is this child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Here ends the reading. In our home, we annually break out our nativity set and display it prominently as the centerpiece of our Christmas decorations. A few years ago, on a trip to Israel, my wife and I bought a beautifully carved olivewood set in the gift shop in Bethlehem. Although this set is beautiful, it lacks the nostalgia of the cardboard stable and plaster Paris figurines that's been handed down in our family over the decades. But both of these nativity scenes contain the same characters. A baby Jesus in a manger, Mary and Joseph, shepherds with their sheep, a cow, a donkey, and three wise men, each bearing a gift, each of which was shaped differently to represent gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, some families follow different traditions in setting up and displaying their nativity scene. I remember struggling with my sisters over the arrangement of the characters each year. We all have our own mental picture of 
what it must have looked like when Jesus was born. Some families and churches leave the manger empty initially and add Jesus to the scene on Christmas Eve. And in some traditions, the Magi are placed a distance away from the nativity scene and are moved closer each day so that they arrive on January 6th for the celebration of Epiphany when the story of the Magi bearing gifts is read. Now, the important word here is tradition. In the over 2,000 years since the events took place, countless traditions have evolved to bring Matthew and Luke's stories into our lives. Those traditions fill in the gaps in the Bible stories, which are pretty sparse. And the gaps are many and are surprising to most people. For example, how many shepherds were there? The Bible doesn't say. What animals were present at the site of the birth? The Bible doesn't say, unless we assume that the shepherds brought their sheep with them. How many wise men came to visit? The Bible doesn't say. It just says wise men from the east. We assume there were three because they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. But it doesn't say that each gift was carried by one wise man. And who were these wise men exactly? The Bible only says that they were wise men or magi from the east. Scholars suspect that they were Zoroastrian priests from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Now, I don't point out these biblical omissions and the traditions that fill their gaps to minimize their importance. To the contrary, traditions reflect the faith and work of the Holy Spirit among the faithful for generation after generation. I would go as far as saying that God wants us to fill in the gaps and helps us fill in the gaps. Faith without tradition would be a sterile and unsatisfying experience. Each one of us experiences our faith and our relationship with Jesus from a unique perspective. Faith and the telling of the Christmas story is a personal matter as well as com a communal matter. So what then is the meaning and purpose of the story of the wise men? Well, their presence puts the story of Jesus into the context of the rule of King Herod. Although Herod's title was King of the Jews, he was a puppet king of the Roman Empire. He had converted to Judaism, and thus his legitimacy as king was challenged by many people. And that created insecurity within Herod, since he was afraid that a child with a proper Jewish pedigree would come along and overthrow him. Jesus was born into a fraught political situation. That's important to the Christmas story. Then along come the wise men. You can see why Herod would have been afraid of the message they were bringing. Not only was this child who was born to be king of the Jews, the wise men's presence indicates that he was to be a universal king. Now that would be an outrageous claim for anyone to make. He would rock a lot of boats, including that of the powerful Romans. But that conflict doesn't arise until later. Herod's crafty. He lies to the wise men 
and tells them he wants to worship the child and instructs them to report the baby's whereabouts after he's located. But the wise men are craftier. They are warned in a dream to avoid Herod, and they take a route home that avoided the jealous king. But in the meantime, they delivered their precious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, of course, was a gift for a king, and they recognized Jesus as the Messiah, or the king that God was sending into the world. Frankincense was a valuable aromatic tree resin, which was used to make perfume and incense. In the Bible, it's often used in the temple as a part of ritual sacrifice. Finally, myrrh was another aromatic substance derived from the sap of a plant. It was used in a mixture of herbs and spices to embalm bodies. In the Gospel of Mark, in the story of Jesus' burial, we read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Shalomi brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Thus, the gift of myrrh is a foreshadowing of Jesus dying for our sins. Now, we never hear of the Magi again in the Bible. They disappear as mysteriously as they appeared. That's not the end of the story, however. For their visit had a lasting effect on Herod. Our reading in Matthew continues, Now after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now Matthew's account of what happened to the Holy Family following Jesus' birth is different from what we find in Luke's Gospel, who says that after Jesus was dedicated in the temple, a few weeks after his birth, they returned home to Nazareth in the region of Galilee. But Matthew says they flee to Egypt after an angel warns them of the danger they face. And they're to stay there until Herod dies and the threat to their child is removed. At this point, we encounter a conflict between the stories of Luke and Matthew. Did Mary and Joseph return to Nazareth immediately, or did they flee to Egypt and return several years later? Scholars are uncertain as to which account is most historically accurate. According to Coptic Christians in Egypt, the Holy Family stayed in several places in Egypt, including Wadi Natrum, the monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai, and the towns of El Marak in Upper Egypt. These claims are mostly based on tradition, and you can visit them today. They're based more on tradition, though, than historical evidence. Once again, however, tradition informs our faith. The flight of the family to Egypt brings a modern, tragic twist to the whole drama. Mary and Joseph are refugees, displaced from their home by political and religious conflict. If we identify with them, it's not as rich and powerful, 
but as the homeless and powerless poor. It's more than ironic that they would have traveled not only through Sinai into Egypt, but also through the area that today is known as the Gaza Strip. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Turn on the news and watch the residents of Gaza attempting to flee to Egypt with their crying children, and it's easy to picture Mary and Joseph carrying an infant in their midst. It is fortunate that Mary and Joseph fled because one of the most infamous events chronicled in the Bible now occurs back in Bethlehem. We read further. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled, because they are no more. Herod's action in targeting a specific group of people for elimination, if not genocide by our current definitions, certainly borders on it. Can you imagine human beings so evil that they would order the slaying of innocent babies, or soldiers so cold-hearted that they would carry out those orders? Unfortunately, we can. We are all familiar with the intentional slaughter of innocent men, women, and many children. We've seen terrorists, terrorists using civilians, including disproportionate numbers of innocent children, as human shields. We've seen attempted genocide in Bosnia and Rwanda. That sort of evil has existed since the beginning of history and continues through the current day. Innocent children not only suffer as a result of being targeted directly. In all wars, children become collateral damage. Collateral damage is simply a sanitized term for killing which is used to protect the side in the conflict that we agree with from moral culpability. In reality, however, we have been killing one another since Cain slew evil, and his brother's blood cried out from the ground. The killing of one human being, or a million, is a remnant of original sin which we have inherited. Most of the people I talk with today are depressed and confused by the amount of violence and killing we are witnessing around the world, including in our own country. It seems more and more like human nature is evil. Are we living in a hopeless situation? Not at all. Hope is at the center of the Christmas story including the slaughter of the innocents and the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt. The birth of Jesus is the message of hope in the midst of human-made violence and suffering. Jesus and his family escaped the immediate threat so that he could go on to fulfill his destiny of proclaiming love and forgiveness that evil could not overcome.
In the Gospel of John, we read this description of the birth of Jesus. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This Christmas, when refugees are driven from their homes by war, where we see violence, death, and destruction everywhere we turn, there is a light shining in the darkness. And the more dire, the more dark the situation becomes, the more important it is for us to sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let us not despair and give up, and let us be sure that through the message of the Christ child, that our lives are filled with grace and truth. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. And may the birth of Jesus fill you with hope.